0: You're listening to The Resilient Researcher, hosted by Dalen Culver and Megan Douglas, co-founders of BeDo. The Resilient Researcher is a podcast dedicated to the well-being of social science researchers who routinely find themselves navigating complex settings and sensitive subject matter. We want to bring you authentic conversations with peers and thought leaders, sharing practical insights around the mental health challenges of fieldwork. Together, we are finding our way towards a more ethical, sustainable, and resilient research practice.
1: Okay, so today we have Dr. Hannah Allen. Dr. Allen is an assistant professor in the Department of Health, Exercise, Science, and Recreation Management, and the director of the Substance Use and Mental Health Research Lab. Dr. Allen received her PhD in public health from the University of Maryland and completed a National Institute on Drug Abuse funded postdoc fellowship at Penn State University. Her research is broadly focused on substance use in a developmental context, examining the relationship between substance use, and both mental health and achievement through college and young adulthood. I came across uh, Dr. Allen's, or Hannah, I'll just call you Hannah, Mm -hmm. Hannah's research when I was looking for articles that explored uh, substance use and abuse among postgraduate researchers. And I was really struck by the amount of work that she's done in this area, and just knew that we had to have her on the podcast. So super glad to have you here. Welcome, Hannah.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Uh, So we always like to start things off by sharing a cup of coffee or tea, anything that brings you comfort. It's a very cold and drizzly day in Edinburgh. So I've got my sleepy time tea with me in my big Bidu mug, Um, holding it very
2: close. It's warming me up. It's lovely. What do you have, Anna? Um, Well, I live in Mississippi (laughs) and it is September, which is technically still summer here. So it is in the 80s, close to 90 degrees still. So I am drinking a large <laughs> cool water because if I drank coffee right now, I think I would melt into the, the ground. So yeah, we will have very warm temperatures here for the next couple months. So yeah. Have you ever considered caffeine
1: as one of the substances that you've researched among like graduate youths?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, caffeine is um, one of the things that I feel like we've let slide as sort of a socially acceptable thing to be um, dependent on. But yes, caffeine is certainly something we could lump in with other drugs of use for sure. Yeah.
1: Okay. well, healthy choice with your water. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nice. And Dylan, what do you have?
0: Um, I'm drinking white wine because it's not quite as drizzly and cold here in London, but um, yeah, just had a long day and thought that a glass of wine sounded nice and needed to use this one up, so.
1: (laughs) That sounds nice. That sounds really nice. Amazing. Well, let's jump into it. So Hannah, you have extensive experience researching the intersection of mental health and uh, alcohol and as we just spoke about other substance uh, (laughs) use and abuse. We're not just talking about abuse here but also use and we're particularly interested in your work on substance use and mental health among college and university students. So just curious to know what is it about this particular demographic students uh, that attracted you to researching them in the first place?
2: Yeah. um, So I actually sort of fell into this area of of research when I was in graduate school. My advisor runs or my previous doctoral advisor runs a really large um, study called the College Life Study. Where it's really cool, it started back in like 2004, 2005, um, with a group of undergraduate students that she assessed their substance use and mental health from the first year when they, right when they entered college, and she's actually followed them for the last almost 20 years to see kind of like what happened to them. And so I then came on and was able to be part of that study and had this like really rich data set and kind of fell in love with this area of research on learning about substance use, mental health, and then how it then affects sort of your other life outcomes. So looking longitudinally is it doesn't just affect what happens to you until you're 22, but there can be some like long-term effects for people. So um, that was how I got into this area. So I was able to use a lot of that data um, to publish off of and learn from and then have kind of continued that into my career. But I'm just sort of fascinated by the I sort of call it like the bubble of, of college life because it, it's such a unique period in terms of the transition from adolescence into sort of being a grown up. Right. Where you have. Usually four years, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less to um, make a lot of mistakes, <laughs> um, you know, make some poor choices and sort of learn from those. And I'm just really interested in what happens during that time and how it affects overall functioning for for young adults. Um And it also has just has been shown to be a really high risk time for particularly for substance use. And for a lot of reasons, it's it's developmentally appropriate in terms of people first being like introduced to different substances. There's a high um, rate of availability on college campuses for alcohol and other drugs. And um, when you're at that particular state in adolescence and young adulthood, you're more likely to engage in a lot of risky behaviors, including substance use. And just sort of the pressures of of college, high academic pressure, peer pressure, social pressure it's kind of like this perfect storm of all the different reasons why anyone uses substances, um, just kind of all coming in at, at one time. And a lot of our mental health disorders often have their onset um, in adolescence and young adulthood. And so that also makes this population at really high risk to first start experiencing symptoms of certain mental health disorders, or also to see them really exasperated from maybe things that started to show up in adolescence. So it's really just like this peak time where things can go wrong or where we can do a lot of really good prevention work. So that's where I kind of became interested in that particular population.
0: Yeah, I really resonate with what you say about college being such a bubble. Um, mm-hmm. I did my undergrad at the University of Virginia, which was very much a work hard, play hard kind of environment, I would say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it is very much a, a time of experimentation, I think, for a lot of kids. And that comes with a lot of risks. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, opportunities to see whether you sink or swim academically and personally. And I You know yeah i saw a lot of friends go through that i went through that myself so i i can totally resonate with um your interest in that particular demographic um i'm curious what you can tell us from your research about the correlation between substance use and mental health in graduate students or in students more broadly and i'm curious substances you looked at in particular and why
2: Yeah, so I actually started to, although a lot of my (laughs) sort of earlier work when I was still in graduate school focused on undergraduate students, um, when I got to the dissertation stage, what I realized is that as I was reading, a lot of the research, not a lot of people were focused on graduate students. They were often not even included in the population of these research studies. And I'm sitting there as a PhD student and a cohort of other PhD students. And we're all just like falling apart emotionally, <laughs> mentally. And I'm like, why is no one studying us? Like we're such a mess. <laughs> like, And I, I started to kind of become interested in like about you know maybe 15 to 20 percent of our campus was graduate students but all these studies i was reading were all undergraduate students and i was like but why is no one concerned about what's happening to this other population so i actually kind of transitioned into this interest in studying graduate students because so few people We're doing it. And I was like, if these are the people that are going to hold really important positions in society, they're going to be our doctors, our teachers, our nurses, our professors, like our politicians, like our lawyers. Do we want them to have really intense substance use issues or untreated mental health issues? And I'm like, why are we not looking at this? Especially because so many people are now going to graduate school, it's becoming such an increasingly popular thing and mandatory in a lot of fields that you get a master's degree, get, you know, some type of graduate degree. I think we have, it's probably gone up, but about 3 million people enroll in graduate school every year in the U.S. So this is a really big population of people that no one was really looking at their mental health or substance use. So I said like, okay, this idea that mental health and substance use are prevalent and correlated in undergraduate students has been really well established. We know they're drinking. We know they're using drugs. We know they're having these mental health issues. We're working in that area, but we also need to apply and see if those same correlations exist in graduate students. Do they look different? Are they not a problem? Like We just kind of need to figure out if it translates into graduate students as well. Um, So that's when I, I sort of started to formulate my dissertation work, which was doing looking at these correlations, mental health, substance use, and how they sort of manifested in graduate students. And um, I think that the work, there's still a lot that we need to know. Like, I did find a lot of what I was expecting to find, but I don't think it works in the same way. I did not find as much of a direct correlation between mental health and substance use in graduate students that does exist in in undergraduate students. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is because In general, this is going to be a population that is going to have less substance use in general. If you think about a typical undergraduate student and a typical graduate student, the typical graduate student will drink less, will be less likely to use drugs, and will probably have greater access to mental health services, greater utilization of those. So it is a lower risk population for like the actual behavior. But my thinking is it might be higher risk for like the consequences if that behavior exists. So it's like, we need to kind of figure that out. So I did find a good amount of mental health issues in this population, fairly low substance use, which is what I looked at. Um, And then, yeah, but I didn't find that statistical correlation between what I looked at, which was substance use. And I looked at alcohol use, marijuana use, and the non-medical use of prescription drugs. So I looked at those like three categories. I didn't focus on other illicit drug use outside of marijuana use because that prevalence would have been really low in my sample and it would have been hard for me to find like good statistical correlation, um, and so while I didn't find links between substance use and I looked at burnout, which was exhaustion, cynicism, and efficacy, I didn't find those links in this particular population. Um, but I did find links between their mental health, so their stress, anxiety, depression, and their burnout. So clear links between their mental health and then their ability to kind of like persist in graduate school, not as direct with substance use. But I don't think that's because they don't exist. I think it's because I had a low substance using population. Um, and I didn't necessarily look at certain things that I should look at in future work.
1: That's super interesting. And I think it's, it's, it's good here to remind listeners. So the sample that you're drawing on, you're speaking about the, the U.S. Uh, context only
2: um, uh-huh. Yep. Yes, this was only in the US. So that's another piece as well is like the college experience is unique in every country. And so if we were able to replicate this study or this work and and there has been work that's been done um internationally as well, we would probably find something completely different. So the context is important and also I only collected data um, from there was two universities. So my sample also only really represents what's happening at those universities. So in terms of when I think about future work, I would never make the conclusion that any of my findings are like finite or, you know, like final in any way, because we need to still look at broader international samples, other universities, more like nationally representative samples.
1: Sure. Yeah. Because I'm thinking about... um you know, I, I'm thinking about the the UK context. This is a generalization, obviously, but it's very much mm-hmm. a drinking culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of among the graduate students I know, it's 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 very much kind of you hit the pub after the seminar or mm-hmm. you know, supervisory meeting, um, and drinking is sort of a way of life here. So, I, I would be curious to know how the results would would be different. Um, yeah, and I don't, I haven't looked into any kind of comparative studies between the U.S. and the UK, but yeah, it, it is interesting to 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 think about what it might look like in different contexts, um, different conditions. Yeah.
0: I was even thinking to obviously in the UK, I think marijuana use would be a different picture as well because mm-hmm. it's not. I mean, I know you're in Mississippi, so I actually don't know what the regulations are in Mississippi, but
2: yeah, you can Colorado. probably guess. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I can guess. Um, I I'm from Colorado, lived in California, and. Um, marijuana is much more normalized, I think, in the US in general, but especially in states where it's legal, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, than it is here in the UK, where it's still very much not. Um, And I was thinking, too, about why graduate students might be more low risk. And um, I'm wondering if you think it has any anything to do with age of that particular demographic. So most, especially in the U.S., I'm not sure what your particular sample looked like, but I feel like a lot of people come back to graduate school in the U.S. when they're in their mid to late 20s um, or sometimes even older. And by the time you're 25, your brain is more fully developed. Maybe you're not as much in that kind of experimental phase as you were in undergrad. Um, Yeah, I don't know if there's a... There's a distinction there. And I'm also curious to yeah. look at use versus abuse. Do you yeah. find differentiate between those?
2: Yeah. So um, there were yeah a few things. So we've actually sort of like I say we I guess like the larger like substance use research community is actually moving away from the term abuse. Um, Because there's been some really neat language studies where they've looked at, like, how people respond, particularly people that use drugs, like how they respond to certain words. So, like, if we think about terms like addict or alcoholic or drug user and so and this kind of started with the disability movement of using like person first language so like people that use drugs not drug users like things like that um and so there's been a lot of interesting work over the last like decade 15 years that has really looked at like what are the terms that we use um to describe substance use and people that use that use drugs And um, one of the big things is we used to use terms like, yeah, like alcoholic or things like that or addicted. And now we've gone to like having an alcohol use disorder. Um, or a substance use disorder. And same thing has kind of been happening with the term abuse. And this actually is a more recent one, because we see that there's a lot of our big organizations, like NIDA is still called the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Like these are things that are still used in sort of like everyday language. But people are starting to say like the word abuse, when you think about what it's usually associated with, are like really terrible things. right? And so we've kind of said like, when people say like, I am, you know, abusing, cocaine, right? Then there's this sort of like idea that it can be attached to some judgment and um, sort of this idea of like punishment or things like that. And so it's sort of moved towards the term misuse is used a lot with, particularly with prescription drugs, because if you think about misusing just means you're using it in a way that's different than how it's meant to be used. Um, or like uh, that you don't have a prescription for it, or you're taking more than you should. So misuse is common with prescription drugs. And then um, with alcohol, um, we tend to just use alcohol use. And then we will use other terms for like heavy or high risk drinking, like binge drinking, or like high intensity alcohol use. And then with illicit drug use or drugs that are like not legalized, um, we just use use because simply by using them at all, it kind of implies like some aspect of misuse, right? Because it's not maybe legal or not recommended at any level. And so, yeah, so that that's kind of, but in terms of like actually thinking about like what is I don't know, like a safe level or a not safe, or yeah, what's use versus misuse. That's different for every single substance. So in some cases, there's certain levels that are either set by, you know, like the DSM has like what is considered disordered use of something, like of alcohol. Um, and then there's just certain levels of categories. So like binge drinking is like four or more drinks during a drinking episode for women, five or more for men. Like, you know, there's there are certain benchmarks, but that's then going to be different than Marijuana, that's a little bit harder to quantify, right? In terms of like how much you're using. So normally they actually won't be based on quantities. They will actually be based on, because yeah, it's hard. Like if you are, someone hands you a joint at a party, you're not like, how much am I taking right now? So it's harder to do that. Drinks is a little easier. Um, But with this, it's more about like, when it's considered like a disorder that you've passed in a disorder, it's more about how it's affecting your life. When I wake up, I need to immediately smoke a cigarette. Um, I crave these things. I experience negative effects when I don't use these things. It's more about like, not how much you're using, but actually like what are the things happening to you socially? Like you're experiencing negative social interactions, problems at your job, problems in your family, I got off on a tangent. I don't even remember what question you asked.
0: <laughs> no, this is all relevant yeah. um, and that's that's the kind of understanding of use versus abuse that I had before too. It's like it's like when does it start to impact your quality of life? Mm-hmm. Um, but you continue to do it anyways and I'm curious, did you ever look you said you looked at pharmaceuticals or prescription drugs, did you mm-hmm. look at um Adderall and other study drugs?
2: yeah. Yeah. So in this particular um, study, I looked at I think I used the four categories of um, because often and and rightfully so, we've definitely been experiencing a big focus on looking at opioids, right, and opioid misuse. But there are a lot of different categories of prescription drugs that can be misused. Um, And a lot of the work that I've done has looked at sort of the difference between because like people that engage in misuse of certain types of drugs Um, they might have different outcomes, right? It might look different based on what you're using it for. So in this particular study, I looked at different classes of prescription drugs. So like stimulants, analgesics, tranquilizers, and sedatives. And so Adderall, so that would be in our stimulants, yeah, because people use it to like increase their concentration and things like that. So I looked and sort of like, and a lot of times I'll lump these together if the prevalence is low. And so I think for this one, and I just kind of lumped all the prescription drugs together. But that is a really common class, especially among college students and graduate students of people that are misusing drugs tend to be using them for like academic or like study enhancing effects. So I would say like I can probably guess that the majority of people who said in this particular study that they were misusing prescription drugs, it was like probably that stimulant class, which is tends to be the most common of those classes that are misused.
1: I think that fits in. We've, we've spoken before on this uh, podcast about kind of um, I mean, we've used the word toxic, but kind of kind of the dangerous side of academia and how there's this there's this narrative that's pushed that you kind of have to suffer, particularly mm-hmm. in certain disciplines. You know, you have to put yourself into dangerous situations, for example, in fieldwork situations. Um, and I've certainly heard stories and they might just be stories but you kind of hear around the pub table you know people who have taken Adderall to stay up late mm-hmm. to kind of you know finish off their thesis because the deadline's tomorrow and they just started on it and you know or um really kind of beginning to depend on alcohol because academics mm-hmm. got them down and it has, unfortunately, I think among some people become a bit of a joke. I think there's some yeah. urban legends, um, you know, a bit of. Um, yeah, it's almost like become expected and, and it's, it's quite sad, actually. So I don't know if you've come across kind of similar narratives in your circles where it's just become sort of
2: yeah, misuse has
1: become so normalized.
2: Yeah, no, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about, like so much of that is like environment and situation specific, like you might have a group of friends or your cohort might be very inclined to, like you were saying, go out to drink after, you know, a class or something like that. Or you might live in a state where marijuana use is legal and more common and more accessible. And so then use goes up and the the narrative around that is also very different than like if someone maybe in Mississippi was using that where it's not legal. Um, And so, yeah, I think that that can have that kind of also, I think, gets to one of the the big areas of substance use research research is this idea of motives and that like not all substance use is created equal so if you think about someone that is drinking eight drinks while they're at a party for like enhancement reasons because they're feeling social and they're celebrating something and they're out versus someone that's sitting at home by themselves in the middle of the night drinking eight drinks they're both drinking eight drinks but they're linked to very different things one of them is like socially isolating, one of is has like a social motivation to it. One is maybe a coping mechanism, one is an enhancement mechanism. So there is a lot of work in that aspect as well. So if we think about people also in graduate school, it's like, what is the purpose of your substance use? Yes, two people might be alcohol users, but is one drinking because they're really struggling in graduate school and they're using that alcohol to cope and they're going home and they're drinking a lot on their couch at night by themselves and feeling depressed and lonely. And the other one is going out with their friends and their cohort and drinking in a celebratory way and actually feeling very socially connected. Um, So that also, I think, makes a difference as well in terms of the outcomes that can be linked to our substance use. Because there actually have been some studies that have shown that substance use can actually be, I want to say like protective. Um, And I'm sure that hopefully no one like pulls that out and is like, Dr. Hannah Allen says like substance use is good for you. (laughs) But what it means is they found it to be protective against like dropping out of college or even dropping out because if you drink, sometimes that equates to you have friends, you feel connected to the campus, you're in a fraternity that you really like you know, it actually can be like, and so once again, there's, it's not like you drink and you stay in school. There's a mediator there of like, you're drinking because you have a social support network. So I think that's also important to think about too, is like, what is the environment where the drinking is happening? What is the motivations of the substance use? And that even goes back to are using substances to study? And is that is that indicative then of an outcome of then you do finish your thesis, like so you do get the work done? Like so, it can get tricky in terms of why you're using something, yeah. and then what those linked outcomes actually are. So yeah, yeah.
0: I was gonna say, I wonder if you could extrapolate that kind of distinction between motivation to study drugs. Like I remember having a friend at UVA who. Really loved final season when she would get up at 6 a.m., go for a run, take a shower, take an Adderall, go to the library and just get super into writing her essay and just Mm -hmm. crank it all out. And she enjoyed it. And I think it like and maybe you could argue that it enhanced her experience. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who use it in different ways because they put off all of the work until the last minute and now have to stay up all night doing it. But um yeah, I think that's really interesting, that distinction and motivation.
2: Yeah. And there there is also, um, there's a big debate, I guess, like in the substance use community, research community, and treatment community now about this idea of like, is there safe substance use? And definitely that has been argued for a long time in terms of tobacco, alcohol, and other legal drugs. Um, or legal substances. And then people are obviously much more conflicted about that when it comes to the what the substances that historically have been not legal, like marijuana, um, and other illicit drugs. But there's definitely a pool of of folks that are saying that there can be safe levels of any drug. And then there's a lot of people that are saying, like, definitely no, Um, you know, and so it's a it's an interesting way to look at it. So kind of what you're saying, it's like, can we figure out like even if let's say we did find that like the people that were using adderall actually maybe had a better academic outcome that someone that wasn't does that mean we then endorse that right or how does that actually translate into practice like we can understand that link we can understand why maybe heavy drinking sometimes equates to social support which equates to graduating from college and not dropping out using adderall or misusing prescription stimulants maybe equates to completing your dissertation But does that, you know, is that then translate into us saying here's Adderall for everyone? Like, so I think that's more the thing is like there's understanding the association and then there's translating it to practice um, and to recommendations and thinking about like those things. And once again, if you ask two different people, you know, there'll be way different answers of what that, what that means and what that looks like. So. Hmm.
1: And I also wanted to ask, so One of your articles uh, was called Substance Use and Mental Health Problems Among Graduate Students, Individual and Program Level (laughs) Correlates." Always catchy titles. Um, And we will be linking uh, anything we reference in the description of this episode, by the way, so people can check it out for themselves. Uh, But this article states that graduate students in the behavioral and social sciences, social work and arts and humanities disciplines were more likely to use substances and report mental health problems than engineering and business students. So mm-hmm. just curious if if you have any sense of, of why that might be.
2: Yeah, so that paper was one of my favorites to write because I was, when I first kind of started on this journey of wanting to learn more about what was happening in graduate students, one of the things that kind of stopped me initially, and it actually goes back to, I think, a question that, um, all asked that i just like blatantly didn't answer because i got off on a tangent and didn't respond but um of this idea that the graduate student population is so heterogeneous even more so than the undergraduate population like if you have an undergraduate population they tend to fall around the same age of course there's exceptions and outliers they tend to be at the same developmental age um and then, but you think of graduate school and and they tend to live like, you know, residential. If you think, t- talk about traditional four-year college campuses, they'll, they'll live in the same places. Most of them are not yet parents, um, are not yet married. Their income is still very much tied to, to their parents and their um, immediate family. Graduate students are, they're so completely different. You might get one that is 23, that is still receiving some sort of financial assistance from their parents maybe living at home, maybe living in like a graduate student apartment. And then you might have a 45 year old who is married with four children, has a full time job and is getting their master's degree online. Those are two very different people, very different experiences. And so looking at graduate students, I was like, not only do we need to figure out what these correlates are in terms of like linking mental health and substance use or mental health and substance use with achievement, But also just understanding, like, what are some of those demographic correlates? What are some of those academic correlates of these behaviors? Um, And yeah, so going back to that question, like, so many factors that influence substance use in the general adult population are relevant here. So across the lifespan, if you look at longitudinal data of substance use, you will see sort of this general trajectory of this peak in young adulthood, and then it then declines over time. As you get older, you do engage in less substances. There is a minority of the population that will go into disordered use um, across the lifespan and have issues. But for the most part, general population trends down, you will drink less. And there's also like developmental milestones or social milestones that um, contribute to that. So after you get married, your substance use tends to go down. And after you have children, your substance use tends to go down and after you graduate college. So you think about those like three big things that tend to happen in young adulthood-ish Um, but there's also been a lot of cool research now that a lot of people are delaying those milestones into their thirties, into their forties. It's like, what does that then mean for substance use? So we think about graduate students. And so what is happening in their life and their life at home, or what are some of their demographic correlates that are influencing their substance use, um, sort of outside of their academic experience. So that was where this paper came from was kind of wanting to look at those demographic correlates and then also wanting to look at. Some of these academic correlates of like what about the discipline you're getting? What about the degree you're getting? Um, because there is like a, a there has been research that's been done on like are certain substances more prevalent among certain types of disciplines? Like, you know, there's always like you think of like Wolf of Wall Street and like business people like doing cocaine and like stuff like that, like lawyers drinking in their offices, like on suits and all that. So I was like, is that a thing? Like and I kind of wanted to to look at that. And so what I did find was that people that, yeah, tended to be in like the social and behavioral sciences, the humanities, there was higher um, prevalence of mental health disorders. I will definitely preface this by saying, I don't know if that actually translates into true differences in mental health or if it's just differences in reporting of mental health issues. Um, there's a lot of gender differences. Women tend to be, more likely to go into those fields, the social behavioral sciences and the arts and humanities. Women also tend to have higher levels of mental health issues, and women are also more likely to report that they do right to be to share that they're experiencing mental health issues. And while mm-hmm. I did control for those things, it's definitely something that I think needs to be said. Um, and so, yeah, so that was one
1: of them. Yeah, I mean, as we're talking about more likely to report, it does make me. Think kind of even in this context over here, Dalean, you'd probably agree. Kind of just all this talk and the vocabularies and thinking around mental health and well-being seems to be much more on the radar of people kind of within the humanities, social sciences than in business yeah.
2: engineering also just increased knowledge, yeah, of those concepts. Like, if you think about someone that's a psychology student, they're probably much more aware of their own mental health, like their internal mental health, because it's something they're studying. So, they're going to have a better understanding of, of what that is. Um, there's also cool work that's been done that there's also like um predisposing factors that about you. And about yourself that make you more likely to go into a certain field. So like if you have a mental health issue, you're more likely or to be interested in mental health and maybe go study psychology or go study public health because it's something that's touched your life. So there's also a lot of factors about you as a person that actually are linked and it, even different personality factors That are linked to both your likelihood of going into a certain career path and also your likelihood of having a substance use issue or not having a substance use issue. And also, same with mental health. So, I think there's a lot of sort of underlying factors that explain that finding. But once again, I do not think it means (laughs) that there's not like I always think about people in my life that, you know, are in like, you know, I work on a college campus. So people that are in like engineering or business or whatever, and you, if you ask them, like, Have you ever struggled with mental health and they say, no, I'm like, really? Cause I've been in meetings with you. So I don't know. But, <laughs> so I think, but they're not like, going to <laughs> yeah. put it on a survey. They're not going to put it on a survey. Whereas like me, I'm like, yeah, like here are all my feelings from the last month. Yes. So I'll tell you everything. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just a very, it's hard to get that like true data from that. Um, but there's definitely things that can be understood. Um, Another thing that I found in a different paper that looked at when I was kind of looking at other research to understand these findings was that people in the arts and humanities, there is like an an increased level of stress that I think often gets downplayed because people tend to think all the stress lies within STEM fields. But in arts and humanities, you often think there's like this pressure to produce, to be creative, like a lot of stressors that we don't even understand. that actually can also contribute to that as well. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, wow. some some cool stuff related to differences by discipline that I think is important to always keep that in the work. Because if we just lump all the graduate students into one population and then run regressions, like we are not going to tease out then who are the high risk folks like maybe that data tells us like, hey, the 45 year old is perfectly fine. We need to focus on the 22 year old. And so that way we know where to direct our prevention efforts. We know where to direct our you know, clinical efforts um, or we know how to tailor them to these like very heterogeneous groups of graduate students.
0: Hmm. And in any of these studies that you've done, have you found that Substance use among graduate student populations is changing or has changed in the last few years. Is there an increase or a decrease over time? I mean, I'd be curious to know in states where what the difference is between states where legal marijuana is legal versus illegal. Yeah. Um, but have you noticed a change over time?
2: Yeah, so I haven't um, done any longitudinal work in this um, space. I I would like to do that. If any of you have a million dollars, I will take it to fund a study. Keep me posted. If I had a million dollars,
1: I would definitely give it to you. Yeah,
2: that's the best use of a million dollars I can think of is funding a longitudinal substance use study. But I would actually love to do something that's similar to kind of the design of the study I was talking about earlier is be able to take incoming graduate students, follow them through their graduate Programs and then follow them after, right? It'd even be really cool to follow like before and like look at that. And so, um, because then we would actually be able to look at change over time. There are not, to my knowledge, and that's a big asterisk, good studies that are just looking at graduate students or have like a good chunk of graduate students that are producing like yearly estimates. I think we can pull from different, maybe cross sectional studies. But oftentimes the issue with those, and you'll read a lot of studies that are on graduate students, and they'll say, like, we surveyed like 100 psychology students, and that's such a niche population. So there's not really great estimates. But I think we can make assumptions about what's happening in that just by looking at general population data. Um, but even that is a little bit different because we think about graduate students are a high achieving population, right? Although we see that there are certainly issues with mental health, Um And like a unique set of stressors that come with graduate school. If you think about it, it is a privileged population that is in graduate school. That is just a fact. We look at differences between the general population and people in graduate school. There is a certain socioeconomic status that's coupled with that, um, the ability to pay for graduate school and things like that, um, to not work full time, like other aspects of that. And so that's something to keep in mind. But we can look at what's happening in the general population and assume that some similar trends are happening. And we are seeing increases in substance use in the last few years, mostly because of the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a ton of research that came out um, about differences in college students and then also differences in the general population. We saw a lot of increase in alcohol use, increases in marijuana use. Um, and so I can assume that that's also the case for graduate students as well who are you know part of that population. But I don't know. like I can't say that for sure. But I would imagine that similar trends we're seeing would also be true um, in the graduate student population as well. But I do think the marijuana is a, um, that's a really, really like hot research topic right now. And that needs to be looked at in graduate students, especially based on like differing state policies. Here in Mississippi, we just legalized medical marijuana use, just legalized medical use. So it's definitely been like, Someone going to graduate school here is going to be very different than someone going to graduate school somewhere else in terms of um, access to certain types of substances. Um, We also have very different policies around alcohol use, where you can buy it, how it's accessible, um, and also just different harm reduction programs for illicit drug use. Like, So state policies are so important. So I would love to do a longitudinal study to be able to look at more like historic Or just trends over time, or to have like an ongoing cohort based, like cross sectional study that could also look at some historic trends. But um, right now, I can just assume that substance use is going up because it's going up in the general population.
0: I think people were like rioting in the streets when they tried to close the dispensaries in Colorado during COVID. (laughs) Yeah. When um, everybody was stuck at home, they were like, don't you dare do that to me. (laughs) <laughs> is um is Mississippi the same as Virginia in the sense that their alcohol is controlled and can only be sold from specific stores at specific times
2: yes yeah so we um have partic- like we can only like you cannot buy liquor unless it's at like a particular liquor store we can buy like wine and liquor you can buy beer at like grocery stores and things like that but we've had a lot of movement at the state level around like some of those policies changing in terms of how liquor sales are um controlled like either by the state or by like private entities and so we've had a lot of interesting like substance use policy change in Mississippi um, that definitely affects like what happens on college campuses and what happens for people living here and yeah so state by state is also interesting and and also plays a role in terms of if we did do a big national study we would have to take that into consideration and make sure we're controlling for different different state policies because they're all so different.
1: What about cigarettes and vaping? Are you seeing, have you noticed like decreasing levels where you are of of smoking cigarettes and increasing vaping?
2: Yeah. So um, this is another definitely within, if you're in the substance use field, there are substance use researchers and there are tobacco researchers. They're almost like two separate things. And like, almost like rarely do people like intersect. I don't know why, but like, I think tobacco because it's so broad and because it does encompass so many things. Like hookah, yeah, e-cigarettes, um, tobacco use, like combustible cigarettes, cigars, like all those things. They kind of it's it's oftentimes been treated as its own research area. So if you read studies, you will tend to see, and this is not the case for everything, but you'll tend to see that they're either about smoking or they're about like alcohol and drug use. So a lot of the work that I do actually doesn't include smoking. Sometimes I will ask it as a question and I will control for it. Um, but I always kind of think of it as like its own separate beast for a lot of reasons. Um, and yeah, so, but in terms of that, just sort of like broad strokes, um, combustible cigarette use has been declining over the past several decades just because of different laws that have been passed. And e-cigarette use is just through the roof, like particularly through in adolescents and young adults, it is skyrocketing. So like vaping e-cigarette use is a big, a big, big issue right now. Um, researchers are definitely scrambling to understand it. The FDA did not start regulating e-cigarettes until like a couple years ago. So in terms of like actually even making sure we are regulating what's being sold, what's being advertised. Um, so that is still such an emerging area, but prevalence is really, really high and getting even higher, like as we speak. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So that's definitely an interesting area.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's also interesting. I, I was not aware that it was kind of treated as a as a different beast. Um,
2: yeah. Of it. It, and, and some people do both, but I always find like, like if you go to a conference, it's either like a tobacco conference or it's like an alcohol and drug, like they're just very like, they're oftentimes treated quite separately. Yeah. Although there's obviously a lot of overlap in terms of just like dependence on different substances. It's just like you mentioned with caffeine, like Just because we've decided something is is legal (laughs) for whatever reason, like does not mean that it doesn't function in a really similar way to a lot of different substances. And so smoking Mm -hmm. is one of those, like for some reason we've deemed nicotine and alcohol to be legal and other things to not. And that's, there's a lot of political and historical reasons why that is. But um, yeah, but it's, it's definitely, it's, it's kind of own research entity a lot of times. Yeah, that's interesting. Um,
1: I wanted to ask another, about another article that you worked on because Dylan and I are quite mm-hmm. interested in, in the roles of, of supervisors uh, in academia. And so one of your articles was graduate student burnout, substance use, mental health and the moderating role of advisor satisfaction. Um, so you talk about how having a supportive academic advisor can mitigate risks of burnout. So just curious mm-hmm. if you can speak a bit about that
2: yeah so um in that paper, one of the big findings was the link between mental health, so like having an anxiety disorder, a depressive disorder, and then looking at how that linked to burnout. And so burnout has these three different sub constructs, there's exhaustion, so essentially exactly what it sounds like, you're just exhausted about being a graduate student. Then there's cynicism, which sort of means like you've lost a sense of why what you're doing is important. You're like, why am I here? What am I doing? And then there's inefficacy. So like, I don't feel like I can do this. I'm not going to make it. I'm not smart enough. So there's sort of those three different components of burnout, which are all like unique indicators of dropping out of graduate school, which has its own problematic outcomes associated with it. And so I was interested in how mental health was linked to those three different aspects and then how maybe an advisor's support could potentially buffer that those effects. And so um, what we found was that advisor support did buffer the relationship between you know, mental health issues and specifically stress, between stress and cynicism and inefficacy. So if we think about the role of an advisor in cynicism, so essentially like encouraging you to be like this is important like what you're doing matters like stick it out and then also your efficacy level so like your advisor can play a very important role and if you feel like you can do something you're smart enough to do it you have the skills to do it or if you don't and so the reason why I wanted to do that is because I assumed I would find links between mental health and burnout and I didn't just want to stop the paper at that right because it's very hard to say that we're going to be able to erase negative mental health or stress from the graduate school experience. We can do things to help, but it is going to be a stressful time for anyone that embarks on a graduate degree. I don't think we can get rid of it. So what are the things that may make it a little bit more manageable? We know you're going to be stressed, but what then is a factor that can mitigate what that stress does to you? And so that's kind of I wanted to look at maybe having a supportive advisor can then stop that train of stress from becoming I want to drop out of graduate school. And so I did find that for that cynicism and an efficacy piece is that advisor support. So people that said that they you know felt supported by their advisor, um, that that did make a difference. And so I felt like that kind of was a good call to action for people reading those papers, which tend to just be academics. Like I know that who reads my articles? <laughs> and so like, but they probably have students. And so I was like, okay, maybe this is like, they'll be like, all right, like I can be, you know, a, a supportive piece here. And I don't want that to get misinterpreted. Cause it's like you said at the beginning of like, there is a sense, particularly among, um, I guess like more seasoned faculty members or professors that I suffered, you will suffer too. It's part of the experience, like trial by fire. Um, And they have this fear that then we're just going to start like handing out PhDs and giving people hugs and candy and giving out doctorates. And I don't think that it's either or. Like, I really think that you can be supportive and also have high standards and hold students to similar standards, but recognize, like, through an equity lens, that people need different supports to be held to those same standards. And I'm hopeful that you know, we can continue to find what of those other factors, social support's a big one, not just advisor support, but family support, peer support. Um, And so being able to figure out, like, we know it's going to be stressful. So what are those buffering effects?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's just, you know, speaking from my own experience or whatever it's worth, but I would not have made it through my master's and the PhD if I did not have a sound support system, uh, especially from my academic advisors, because, Mm -hmm. Lord knows I suffered massive imposter syndrome. I still do. Um, but efficacy part of things and yeah, so it made a huge difference for me. Um, also, I hope your mom reads your articles. Does she?
2: <laughs> she does try. She does. I sent her my dissertation um and she was like she was like I will skim this. It's <laughs> <was> like, okay. <laughs> I think my mom said the same. It was like, sweetheart, you know I'm not the
1: whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. So. Oh, wow. Um,
0: Just with an eye on time and kind of in the same vein, um, beyond supervisory support, I'm curious what you think, in your professional and in your personal opinion, um, what you think higher education institutions can do to better support students in managing stress and substance use.
2: Yeah, definitely pay them more. That is like the biggest thing. I think (laughs) people, yeah, like wildly underestimate, um, the, uh, like mental health benefits of having money. (laughs) And so I think that that is like, we see that a lot in terms of the, and that's in any population that the, um, the more financially secure you are, the better your mental health is going to be. And so when we think and this, it also varies a lot throughout the country in terms of what like graduate student stipends are, but I like ours here is not enough to, to live on. And so that's really hard on our graduate students because for many of them, they're not able to continue to work full time if they want to dedicate their time to a graduate degree. And so if we think of this as their only source of income, um, we have to make sure that it, it matches the level of work that they're contributing to the department, to their advisor, <clears throat> making sure they have access to that. And that's been a big thing that has been I know there's been a big push in the U.S., um, you know, advocating for higher graduate student stipends. But it's it's so important. Like it, I feel like it's just so important because I think the money is there. I just don't think it's being allocated in the correct way um, to support our graduate students, so I think that's a big piece. And I do wish that more effort went into some of those sorts of efforts in terms of like our healthcare benefits for our parents. Like uh, we don't have, there's no maternity leave for graduate students that are having children. Like you can't like so these things like are very basic needs that I think we often fail even our staff, faculty, employees on, and then we fail them twice as hard for our graduate students. So I think like, yes, you can have pizza parties and, you know, send, give them a card on graduate student appreciation week, but really they would just love to have health insurance. (laughs) So like, I think all of them would trade pizza for like that. So we can't put a bandaid on like a gaping wound. So I think like those things, I get the power of those that, yes, there is an aspect of feeling like you belong in your department of having social events. But I see a lot of our efforts being directed at trying to do like those types of events and sort of steering attention away from like a lot of the fundamental like structural issues that I think happen particularly for graduate students. Um, So definitely encouraging like um, having you know graduate students on committees across campus having a graduate student faculty having them their votes matter in certain like campus efforts um, re-looking at you know what are the benefits and things that we're offering our graduate students and how do we make them make sense for when, once again, we're thinking about the time in their life that these graduate students are there. Um, yeah. And then holding also faculty and staff accountable for, yeah, they're advising methods their you know, advising support, thinking about what that looks like and, Yeah, because that's also going to vary so much. Like you can be in the exact same PhD program and it looks very different based on who your advisor is. So I think that's also very important is to monitor that and make sure that there's some sort of like accountability for faculty and staff with with their graduate student advisees. 100%. Uh, We always like to ask our guests
1: right before we wrap up what resilience means to them since the name of this podcast is the Resilient Researcher. Yeah, what does resilience mean to you?
2: Oh, man. Um, Yeah, I think resilience, like, um, I guess just like, I don't know, like every day, and maybe I shouldn't say this on a recording, but like every day that I just like, don't quit my job is like, like, I feel (laughs) like I've accomplished something. Like, and sometimes that's what it is. Like, I feel like I have, like, I've heard every piece of advice someone could give you. I've read like every inspirational quote, like everyone tells me to like exercise. And yeah, all that, of course, like I'm in public health. Yes. Like exercise, drink water, get sleep, all those things. But I think being resilient is just like, you know, if what you have that day is 20% to give, if you give 20%, that means you gave a hundred percent. Cause that was all you had that day to give. So I think like keeping that in mind and just like, some days I'm going to do really well and some days I'm not going to do so great and that's okay. Um, And then just hopefully teaching my students to be the same way. I'm very transparent with my students. Like if they come in, I'm like, Hey, I'm not having like that good of a day. (laughs) Like I'm really behind. I didn't give a chance to get that feedback. Like, you know, and just sort of letting them see that that's okay. And academia is really hard. And um, yeah, so I think just, keep on and if you feel like you're having a tough day and you need to go home and take a nap like just do that like I really am much more patient with myself and give myself a lot more grace um, and try to do that for others as well but yeah just remembering that all of our researchers were once graduate students so we have to take care of our graduate students if we want healthy faculty and we have to take care of our undergrads if we want healthy graduate students like it all goes back it's like a chain reaction. So teaching everyone to be resilient and have good coping methods outside of unhealthy behaviors.
1: Mm, I love that. and I love your, your honesty and your openness. That's very refreshing.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel like I can't be like a mental health researcher and not be like aware of my own mental health shortcomings, I guess. Exactly.
0: No, it's true. Um, I... Love the emphasis on, yeah, the fact that we're all only human. Some days we only have 20% to give. Um, Hannah, Where can people go to get in touch with you or to learn more about your work if they want to dive deeper?
2: Yeah, so um, definitely just our university website. So um, my department is hesrm, so edu, and then you can search for the faculty, so Hannah Allen, or you can also search my lab page as well, which is maybe I will update it (laughs) so that way it's actually up to date. Um, but it's the substance use and mental health research lab. But yeah, all my publications are also in my CV and, you know, on Google Scholar and and um my like research gate profile. So yeah, I know that sometimes they're not the most exciting things to read long research papers, but you can just read the abstracts. That's good enough.
0: Depends who you are. I don't know.
2: That's true. (laughs) Yeah. I like reading research papers, but
1: yeah our moms not so much but you know we like it
2: yeah they try but it's just
1: (laughs) yeah they support us in other ways in other very important ways yes amazing well hannah i can't thank you enough um thank you for sharing your insights for your wealth of knowledge for your your honesty your humility it's always refreshing meeting someone like you in academia i wish there were more people like you and uh, yeah, thank you just for giving us a far more nuanced understanding of the complexities around substances and use, abuse, misuse, and and how you just can't generalize how it's so different depending on different histories and cultural contexts and subgroups. Um, so it's been, it's been a very, very educational conversation for me, uh, at least. But thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It was a good time.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Resilient Researcher. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague to keep the conversation going. You can also write us a review and or subscribe to stay on top of new episodes. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. If there's a topic you'd like to explore or if you or someone you know would like to come on as a guest, drop us an email at hello at gowithbidoo.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you soon.